Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the 139th Psalm. Let's join together in prayer. Father, thank you that we have this privilege to sing of your redeeming love, the power that has come through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that that life, death, burial, and resurrection are sufficient to be an available resource of mercy to forgive eternally our sin and to grant eternally your righteousness to us through faith. We rejoice in this and we pray now as we worship you in the study of your word that we would understand what you've said here, that your spirit would do his work in our lives, applying the truth to us, helping us to understand. And we pray, Father, that we would draw near to you and the result would you would draw near to us, that we would rightly, properly celebrate the table that you've set before us. Help us to love you more as a result of our worship. Help us to desire to be led by you. In Jesus' name, amen. We've all had some friends or acquaintances who have led us in the wrong way. Sometimes we call this peer pressure. We've also had, likely, positive peer pressure in our lives where someone was uh, acting and living in a way that their, their actions and their pursuit was a positive impact on us, so positive peer pressure as well. And we're all seeking to be the best friends that we can be We want to be a help to each other as we navigate through difficulty, sorrow, and pain. We want to give the best advice when direction is sought. And we have to, in order to do that, we have to engage in one another's lives. And while we would always seek to give one another the best counsel, or advice, our counsel is based on limited knowledge. Our counsel is based on inability to truly and fully navigate through the circumstances with one another. And our counsel is also based on limited ability to control the circumstances. When God is leading us, we are being led by an all-knowing, always-present, all powerful God. He knows the end from the beginning, and He goes with us on the journey, and He is sovereign over the journey. So the question we have before us this morning is, do you want to be led by God? We're in Psalm 139, and we're going to start by looking at verses 23 and 24, the very last two verses of this Beautiful psalm. Psalm 139, verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Obviously, this is the conclusion to the psalm. And as we conclude 
or read the conclusion to the psalm. We want for us to consider who it is that we would be asking to search us, know us, unveil us, and lead us. Because that's what that passage is asking for. Listen again to it. Search me, O God. So there's the examination. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. There's that continuing of that search. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. So there's the unveiling. There's a searching, a knowing, an unveiling. And finally, in verse at the end of verse 24, and lead me in the way everlasting. So this prayer at the end of Psalm 139 is a prayer for God's searching and knowing, God's unveiling and leading. We want to be searched by a God whose knowledge is intimate. That's how he begins this psalm in verses 1 through 6. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. We want to be searched by a God whose knowledge is intimate. Take a look at verse 1. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. This stanza is proclaiming clearly God's omniscience, and the way he writes it is a very personal manner. He's saying, God, you have already searched me. You have already known me. You know everything about me. Every, there's nothing hidden from you. And yet, when we come to the end of the psalm, he says, oh God, search me and know me. Try me. Try me. Unveil me. Lead me. You see, one is a statement of fact. God knows. God searches. God unveils. God leads. And the other is, Lord, I want, I want, I want you to lead me. I want you to know me. I want you to search me. I want to know where I might be deviating from your plan I want to know where I might be deviating from your thoughts. Where my life does not line up with your standard. I want to know there's a willingness to be searched and known. He tells us that God knows him. God has searched him, it says in verse 1. The term there is chakwah. It's to search thoroughly and intimately. And he's going to give us a little bit more of an understanding of that a little later in the psalm, the, the, just how thorough and intimate that search is. And it's really more of a word picture just to help us to understand how deeply and intimately God knows us. It's not as if God has to go through some search and to figure it out, but God uh, condescends to us to help us to understand in imagery how, how intimate his knowledge is. So we'll get to that in a moment. Not only has he searched me, he has known me, yada, in the Hebrew. It's to know completely. And one of the ways we can break this down easily just for our own systematic thoughts on it is God knows my heart in verse 1. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. 
In verse 2, God knows my thoughts. You have known when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. He knows my actions in verse 3. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. And He knows my words in verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it all together. So God knows everything. God's knowledge is intimate. He truly knows you. When someone judges you from afar, oftentimes their judgment is flawed greatly. When someone knows you intimately, their judgment has a little more discretion that goes with it. When God knows you, His judgment is flawless and perfect. God knows those who are His. This is a Glorious concept from the scriptures. Jesus spoke about it in John chapter 14, excuse me, John chapter 10 and verse 14, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. I know my own. And my own know me. There's this relationship. Jesus doesn't wonder whether he possesses you, he knows whether he possesses you. His sheep hear his voice, they know him. It's good. This is good. And the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19, the Lord knows those who are his. This is a quote from the Old Testament. The Lord knows those who are his. And the, the context of that quotation is a, a scenario when there was a, a rebellion that came up against Moses. And God says, all right, let's test this out. And he sets these people here. And then tomorrow at such and such a time, we're going to find out who really, who really is in the wrong here. And part of that is the Lord knows those who are His. God already knew who was in the wrong. He was just going to reveal it. God is intimately aware. He knows His own. God knows everything about me in verse 2. It says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. Any, well, that's, that's In the Hebrew, that's called a mirism. It basically means He knows when you rise up and when you lie down and everything in between and all around it. It's like it, it, the, the whole it's the whole of us. He knows everything about us. In verse 3, he uses this word picture. You search out my path and my lying down. In the King James, I think it's either winnow or compassist. I can't remember which. But the idea is winnowing. And it gives us this, this picture of dealing with um, chaff and wheat. So they'd harvest the field, and they'd have this mound, and they'd take the winnowing fork uh, or, or the shovel at first, and they'd lift the, a pile of it, throw it up in the air, and the, the wind would blow the chaff, because it's lighter, away, and the heavier wheat would fall to the ground. And then they'd move to the next process from the, the fork to the, uh, to the shovel, and then from the shovel they would take out a sieve. They would have this, this pan, and they would put all the stuff in there, and they would shake it, shake it, shake it, and then you'd be able to see differentiating between the wheat and the little pebbles. And then you have to pick out the wheat or pick out the pebbles, whatever's less, I suppose, and then put the wheat in the proper pile. There's an imagery here of a thorough investigation to make sure that we put the wheat in the right place so when you grind it up to do something with it, you're not eating pebbles or chaff. There's an intimacy to it. There's a, a, a closeness to it. There's an examination process. Now, again, it's just a word picture because God doesn't have to do that. God, this is automatic for him. Before I even speak a word, he already knew it was about to come out. It's, it's, it's just glorious. God knows everything about me. And you could just 
widen that out. God knows everything about everything. Our day thinks they're smart. You know, our day, you know, our day, our people, the people of this day, this age, think we're really smart. We know everything. Mom, wrong. You got that one wrong. Um, God knows everything about everything, every generation, every person, all time, every scientific equation, every mathematic equation, every scientific philosophy. He knows it all. He's God. And he didn't figure it out like, oh, I see what happened there. Let me, now I can interpret it. He did it. Huh. Imagine that. He sets it all in motion and maintains it. This is God. He is thoroughly, intimately aware, not just of the big mass scale, but of the micro scale, from macro to micro. This is him. He knows everything about me. And, and to apply this thought, I just want to refer your mind to Hebrews chapter 4. And, you know, verse 12 says, The word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, the joints of the marrow, the thoughts, and, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You get all that? That's, that's 12. Verse 13, after he tells us how awesome his word is and how impactful his word is, he said, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God knows everything about everything, and not just in general, but specific. He knows about me. He knows about you, the thoughts and intentions of your heart. Verse 4, back in Psalm 139, verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. God knows our words before we speak them. And remember that Jesus said that our words are revelations of our heart. As a man speaks in his heart, so is he. And so God knows us intimately. In verse 5, God is before us and behind us. He's with us, it says. He, uh, verse 5, you hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. This is, this is good. God is with us. He's our forerunner. He, he goes before us, and he's our rear guard. He's behind us. Now, have you ever had anyone say, I got your back? I love having people that have my back, don't you? Is anyone better having your back than God? He's got your back. If you're his, he's got your back. You hem me in, you're before and you're behind. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and you lay, you lay your hand upon me. All right, well, there's a question here. What do you mean by laying your hand upon me? Because there's a heavy hand that can come upon us. And then there's a helping hand that can come upon us. I wonder which of these he might be referring to. Well, the psalmist is David. We know the psalmist David while a sinner and a grievous sinner at that. David was a worshiper of God. A lover of God. One who said, you lead me beside the still waters. One who was known as the sweet psalmist of Israel, the one upon whom many promises have been made about the name that a David would sit eternally on the throne. We also know him to be the man after God's own 
heart. So while a grievous sinner, we know David is one of God's children. And he says, your hand is upon me. And in this context, this is a positive hand. I want to ask you a question that only you can answer before the Lord. And I don't know your spiritual condition. Is God for you? Don't answer that lightly. You have to answer that accurately. Is God for you? Is God against anyone? Well, the fluffy answer is no. That's the fluffy answer. Oh, everyone, God is very nice, and God is very loving, and God is very kind, and he never does anything that anyone would not like. That, that is not the God that the Bible portrays. There, there are people that are against him, at enmity with him, and guess what? Those that are against God find his hand to be heavy and have an eternal heaviness that will weigh upon them so don't answer the question lightly. Answer it honestly. Is God's hand for you? And so here's the question and, and how we would be able to answer this accurately. In the, in the book of Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, the Bible says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? So we have this context in which God is speaking to a group of people. Now the context goes back to verse 28. And everyone loves verse 28, at least the first part of it. Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good. Everyone's like, I'm, I'm on board. I like this. But he goes on, it says, for those who love him, those who are the called according to his purposes. And then he goes on and tells us what that calling is like. He's those that he has foreordained, those he has uh, called, those he has called, he has justified, those he has justified, those he, have, he has glorified. We, we have a, a, a definition as to who these people are, all of these people are, that God is for. It's the ones that, have, that, that know him. Because he knows them. This is good news, friends. This is good news. The, the, the way that we figure out whether God is for us is did Christ die in your place in a way that removes your sin forever? Did Christ die in your place in a way that his righteousness is added to you forever? And the only way you can answer that question is if you've turned from your sin, recognize you're a sinner, sin separates us eternally from God, Turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ who lived righteously and perfectly, died the just for the unjust that He might bring us to God. He died in our place to pay for our sin and to provide us with eternal righteousness. You have to turn from your sin and turn to Christ so that your sin is forever dealt with. And Jesus' righteousness is forever imparted. It's called justification. And it comes by faith. Is He for you? Is he for you? David is recognizing God is, has already searched him and known him. That God knows where he goes during the day, where he goes at night, what he's thinking about when he puts his head on the pillow, what he's thinking about is, as he arises from the bed. God knows it all. He's acquainted with every way, every pathway, every thought. He's searched it out. 
There's not a thought or a way on your tongue, in your mind, or occupying your time that God is not intimately aware of. God knows it all. He hems us in. He's before and behind, and He lays His hand on us. How is His hand on you? Is it a redeeming hand? Is it a loving hand? Is it a protective hand? The answer to that is all yes if you're one of his children. All yes. All yes. David's response to this in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful. We would say too awesome. This is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I cannot comprehend it. It is further, it's deeper, it's wider than I can grasp. God, you know everything, and your hand is still on me for good. No wonder he said, oh God, search me and know me. Try me. Try me. Unveil me. Lead me. I want to know. You are for me. You are for me. You know me. You know me. And you're still for me. I dare say that there's no one on this earth that knows every thought in your heart. There's only one. And knowing all of that, if you're his child, he's for you. We want to be searched by a God whose knowledge is intimate. And as we move to the second stanza, we want to be searched by a God whose presence is faithful. This is the last stanza we're covering today. Next week we'll do the third and the fourth stanza, so don't, don't start panicking in the pew or seat, whatever you want to call it. We want to be searched by a God whose presence is faithful. So this stanza that we're going to read, verses 7 through 12, is proclaiming God's omnipresence. And again, he writes about this in a very personal way. What we'll notice as we read through this in just a moment is that God, through the Spirit, inspires David's writing, and, and that inspiration leads us to see some extremes. God is present in the height and depth, in verse 8. God is present from east to west, in verse 9. And God is present in the darkness and in the light, in verses 11 and 12. So take a look, please, with me at verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Oh, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me is be night, even the darkness is, uh, is, dark, is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Now that's pretty perplexing, isn't it? First of all, I'd say, why is David running? Where shall I go from your spirit? Why, why, why are you running? There's more that can be said about that verse. Like, okay, now he's talking about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and talking about God's omnipresent Holy Spirit as well. Uh, that's another story for another day. Why is David running? And if you were running from God, where would you go? Well, I know I'll go to heaven. Wrong answer. 
I'll go to the grave. Wrong answer. I know. You know where the sun rises in the east? I'm going over there. Nope. What if I sprint really, 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 really fast, as fast as the rays of the sun cascade across the world from east to west? How about if I run really fast? Will he find me then? Yes. Ah, see, I'm a theological genius. I know God is light and in him is no darkness at all. I will hide myself in the dark. And to his amazement, led by the Spirit, God is not bound by darkness. It's like just as clear in the dark for God as it is in the light for God. He is not bound by this. This is, this is interesting. God is not bound by location, and he is not bound by any boundary. What kind of presence does David ascribe to God? Look at verse 10. This is, this is glory. So you think about what he's saying. If, if I go to heaven, you're there. If I go into the grave, you're there. If, I, if I'm over on the east, you're there. If I go all the way to the west, you're there. If, if, I, if I hide myself in the corner of the house in the basement, really in the dark, you're there. <sighs> it sounds like o- oppressive. I can't get away from this God. That's actually not what he says. It just feels that way as we read it, like in segments. Verse 10 is glorious. Look at what it says. Even there, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Even in this pursuit, God is there, and he is for me. His right hand holds me. His hand leads me. What we notice here is that God's presence is a leading presence. Psalm 23, familiar verses. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they Comfort me. I could go on. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup runs over. You anoint my head with oil. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow after me, pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Is leading. His presence is a leading presence. It's an intimate, caring, leading presence. Not only that, it's a safe presence. His right hand, his right hand is upon him. You think about this concept in Psalm 91. Listen to what it says. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide In the shadow of the Almighty, I will say to the Lord, My refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. 
He's safe. He's a safe place. We're not talking about the, the millennials of this age that need a safe place to go in the middle of the day because they've been hurt by too many things. Not, not that kind of safe place. We're talking about no matter what, like real problems that happen. Real problems. When cancer comes. When your job is lost and the funds are dried out. And your spouse dies or your spouse leaves you or your children die or they rebel and go away in the midst of the hardest things in life God is truly a safe place he's a haven of rest for my weary broken soul he's a safe presence the Bible says in Psalm 17 and verse 8, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. God's powerful right hand is a hand of solace for David. And it can be for you as well. God's presence, while exhaustive or comprehensive, is safe. Next week we'll talk about God's presence or um, being searched by a God whose power is supreme. But as we conclude this morning's meditation in the Word, study in the Word, we have to ask this question. Do you want to be searched and known and exposed and led? I guess it depends on who's doing this searching and knowing and exposing and leading. If it's someone who cares little for me, who may use these things to harm me, then absolutely not. However, if we're talking about the God who is for me, who loves me, who has redeemed me, who has promised to keep me forever, if it's a God who will protect me, and guide me into what is best. If it's a God who will know all things and will go with me wherever he leads me, then the answer is a resounding, oh yes, yes, yes. You see, it makes a whole lot of sense how the Spirit moved David to pen these words from God knows everything. To God goes with me everywhere. To God's power reigns supremely over me. We'll talk about that next week. To a response that he has of thinking the way God thinks and responding the way God responds and concluding by saying, God, search me and know me and expose me and lead me. It makes a whole lot of sense because he's in awe of the kind of God who is so many are hiding from him because they don't know who he is. So many run away from him because they don't know who he is. So many try to control their own lives because they don't know who he is. But when you know who he is, you say, Lord, lead me. I don't want any other way. You're for me. You're good to me. You're safe. And you'll lead me in the way everlasting. Let me challenge you as we transition from our worship in the Word 
to our worship and celebration of the Lord's Supper. There are so many things that can influence us. But one of the true authenticating marks of Christianity is that we are followers of Jesus Christ. Followers. We're not just naming a name and proclaiming a thought. Followers of Jesus Christ. We don't just believe a word someday, pray a prayer someday, and then say, okay, I'm all set. We, we recognize who God is. We, we see the, 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 the rightful wrath against sin. And we see God's glorious response in, in shielding us from that wrath in His glorious perfect Son. And we say, wow, God, You cared enough about me to stand in my judgment place. And so we don't just turn from our sin and turn to Jesus. We, we turn to Jesus and we keep on following. It's an authentic or an authenticating mark of Christianity. This following Jesus requires us to seek His will and wisdom. 